Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And here we are with another Blunt Business on CannabisRio.com. My next guest advises cannabis clients throughout the Midwest on topics ranging from state-level licensing issues, compliance with seed to sale tracking requirements, tax issues and litigation. And we're happy to go and have him on to go and speak on his expertise and what he's learned from his clients as the rollout of adult-use cannabis is ongoing in the state of Minnesota. So with me right now is the a partner of the Cannabis Law Practice Group at Greenspoon Martyr. And joining us right now is David Standard. David, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk about cannabis. So when I got to go and see the word about Minnesota and just reading up on what's going on in Minnesota, it's fascinating. There's a lot of different wrinkles that are going on with Minnesota and their rollout, and I wanted to get your take on that. So let's first of all talk about what's happening as of right now. So cannabis is now legal for adults 21 and older to use and possess in Minnesota. It's the 23rd state in the country to legalize cannabis for adult use. The medical program was instituted in 2014, a decade ago, and dispensaries can't open until the state figures out a licensing, a licensing system for the businesses, so they won't open for at least another year, most likely early 2025. So, I mean, I'll tell you, I've heard a lot in the last couple of days, I've been doing interviews with those that were either in New York or in Illinois, and looking at the issues, well, that's for social equity licensing, but just getting the system in place to have dispensaries up and open. I mean, I feel like Texas has a better chance of getting dispensaries open than Minnesota does in the way this is looking. But what can you tell us so far about what's been laid out in the program for adult use, the Cannabis Control Board being put in place, anything peculiar out of the ordinary to be aware of that you've noticed compared to other states and their rollout? Yeah, well, a few things. First off, Minnesota, as it currently sits, is in... A, a very, very unique position in the country and in the world. Uh, Minnesota uh, is the only state in the country where you can walk into a liquor store and purchase, uh, legally purchase, THC beverage. Um, and that that is a result of not the, the latest legislation, but a legislation that was actually passed a year prior. Um, it, it was, you know, locally it's kind of referred to as a, like a Republican folly where they didn't realize what was passing uh, but they they actually passed uh, low THC products in both edible and beverage form, uh, and the market as a result has exploded here. Um, you can order them at restaurants, the drinks. You can order them at bars. Uh, they're available everywhere. They're available at grocery stores, uh, and they're available at liquor stores. So in the only state in the country where you can walk into a liquor store and side by side, you have THC beverages for sale as well as uh, you know your normal six pack of beer. Um, so that interplay of the shelf space fight right now is pretty fascinating in Minnesota. I'm going to go a little bit ahead just to let you give you the heads up on what we're going to bring up here in terms of what is notable. Because I'd like to, I like to put where we're going to go just put a little bit of a bullet point of what's going on. So number one is the aspect with the liquor stores you just brought up as well. Home grows, I've noticed compared to other states, are much more expansive. Now, uh, we're going to detail this a little bit more, but just want to get a little bit of your thought about you know, the, the, the decision now for home grows to be much more, you know, to be expanded more than most other states have it. Plus, with the indigenous tribes there, which, you know, I didn't realize there were so many, but the opportunities that they can already go and start opening with dispensaries and they can already start up in reservations that, you know, the Indian tribes can already start going ahead and moving forward with cannabis adult use. Yeah, so they, they've done that. Uh, both the White Earth and uh, Red Lake Nation, I believe, what is the other tribe? Uh, mm -hmm. They're they're not very close to the metropolitan area here in the Twin Cities, but they have had a lot of success. Uh, they immediately took advantage, uh, starting on August first, when adult use cannabis became legal in Minnesota. They opened their dispensaries. Uh, White Earth has a uh, has a cannabis grow that is that is up and running as well. Um, and, and what a lot of the regulators are pointing to, and, and just general industry 
insiders and that the success that those tribes are having, despite their location and how far away they are from large metropolitan areas, is indicative of the demand that exists in the state for adult use cannabis. Um, but to your point earlier on, the the licensed adult use dispensaries are not going to come online until very, very late in 2024, more likely 2025. Um, and that's, you know, as a result of both the regulatory process that is ongoing uh, and the Office of Canvas Management that is slowly being established. Uh, they do not yet have a head of the uh, OCM. Um, there was a, a bit of a snafu with the initial appointment of the, the first head. Um, and they've now most recently issued a uh, a report and recommendation to the legislature suggesting some legislative amendments to clear some things up in the bill that they believe will allow for a faster, smoother licensing rollout. So now we'll get more into the licensing, but the other thing too is that, and this is just a side note for myself, I'm just thinking about the fact that prior to this, you know, Canada's not too far away. And I don't know how, how far the dispensaries are to go across the border. I know that Winnipeg is about five and a half hours away from most parts of Minnesota. So the five, six hour trip to go up there might've been what some people might've gone for anyway in the first place. But now that Minnesota's getting the full rollout here and what's being allowed, I feel like it is something where there's a lot more autonomy being allowed to the consumers of cannabis more than other states than I've seen in other states. Would would you take that to be an accurate account? Um, I mean, I'm not sure necessarily more autonomy the, the home grow limits are significant in minnesota compared to other states that's certainly for sure um the municipalities are allowed to you know ban public consumption most of them immediately opted to do that in august uh which isn't different than than other states um but the big difference being that you have a state now that is going to have legalized possession and consumption of cannabis for well over a year before there's any dispensaries online that are licensed to sell it to those individuals, uh, which is a pretty unique situation. Um, and, that, and that is a result of most states that are in this uh, position allowed their medical dispensaries to convert to dual-use dispensaries, uh, essentially you know, flipping the switch on the date that cannabis became legal and allowing... <laughs> Excuse me. Allowing the recreational... Uh, sale of cannabis in those medical dispensaries. There's a lot there, and I would imagine the home grow, and we'll go into more of this a little bit uh, after the break, but one of the things that's also very important to note is, I mean, I don't know how much there is a ratio compared to herbal, or is urban to rural areas, because I know there's a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of uh, miles of rural area and a lot of smaller towns that are trying to be covered through this, so would that be something that might have been taken into account because of the fact that there's not that many, you know, urban centers or any large cities, you know, aside from Minneapolis, St. Paul, that can handle, you know, the the kind of traffic or, or would have enough. The dispensaries have obviously in all these metropolitan cities, but there's not a lot of metropolitan, say, northern Minnesota. Yeah, so in, in northern Minnesota, there's going to be demand. Uh, the statute does call for a dispensary floor in each various municipality, one dispensary per 1,200 residents. So, uh, you know, it accounts to some 380 or so dispensaries across the state that will be able to obtain licenses. Uh, I, I anticipate, as in most states, the most successful dispensaries will be the ones that are along borders with states that do not allow for recreational cannabis. And for Minnesota, that's all of them. Um, so, you know, in northern Minnesota, you could see successful dispensaries in the the Fargo-Moorhead area. Uh, you've got the University of North Dakota that's located right there, and also fairly large population base. Mm-hmm. You can see Duluth having a successful uh, dispensary retail uh, industry as well, because Duluth is, a, relatively speaking, to the northern part of the state, a, a population center. You've got St. Cloud that has a university and a, and a larger population base as well. And then you've got Mankato in the southern part of the state as well, uh, as well that has, you know, uh, a large number of people. And then you've got the Iowa border, which recreational cannabis is not legal in Iowa; it's legal in Minnesota. Right. It's 
you know, same as Wisconsin and Illinois, Wisconsin and Minnesota border, I imagine will be successful, uh, both Dakotas as well. So let's get into what you talk about when it comes to the dispensaries and the demand that'll be needed to go ahead and take care of the market when it's fully rolled out. So WCCO TV reported that Minnesota will at least need 400 dispensaries to comply with a new state law. So a one risk dispensary for every 12,500 Minnesotans or at least a minimum of 381 cannabis dispensaries across the state. And participants in a study included Minnesotans who have consumed cannabis within the past year. Of those that participated, 83% reported cannabis consumption at least once a month. 40% reported consuming cannabis daily or almost daily. And participants reported obtaining an average of 24.8 grams of cannabis in the past month, just above the national average. So there you go. I mean, wow, that's, you know, you can see there's a lot more consumption going on here. Demand is high. So to go ahead and take care of the supply, um, what are the things I'm noticing when it comes to the licensing aspect? You know, I don't know if there's been a lot that's been talked about with social equity or in that area, but is there anything you've heard about that part or what's being done in that part that might be similar to what other states have done so far? I mean, obviously the indigenous tribes, they're going to benefit from this greatly off of, right off the bat, but what about other, you know, disenfranchised groups? Yeah, so social equity... Uh, applicant is a defined term in the statute. Uh, it was a large piece of the legislation. They're entitled to a 20% score boost uh, on any application process once the application process is announced by the OCM. So the scoring process is, is you know, kind of a black box right now. It's unknown. There are metrics that are defined in the statute that will require to be part of the application process. They're very similar to every other state, you know, security plan, growth plans, business plan. Um, and then your know, social equity piece of it is going to be entitled to 20%. As currently written, then this is unique to Minnesota, a social equity applicant needs to be 100% owned and operated by individuals that meet the social equity definition. Wow. That is a significant departure from other states, most of which required the social equity applicant to be a 51% owner or member of the applicant. Uh, Maryland was 65%. Um, so it, it, it's, it, you know, it's, they're moving towards, Hey, we want to make sure that the individuals that meet the criteria are the ones benefiting from these businesses. The counter to that is if you need to be 100% owned by the social equity qualifiers, if those social equity qualifiers are not independently wealthy and don't have sufficient funds to right. start these businesses. There's no way for them to get off the ground and there's no way for them to raise money because they don't have equity to sell or distribute because they're not allowed per statute. The OCM has recognized that in the report that they just issued to the legislature. Uh, I want to say it was last week. They have called that point out and they've asked for a legislative amendment to it. Uh, they they point to New Mexico's social equity criteria and indicate that you know, New Mexico only required that 51% threshold. Right. And they make a suggestion that Minnesota make that 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 threshold similar here. Um, it remains to be seen what the legislature will do with that. Uh, I do know that that was a big piece of it. Uh, the, the legislative effort was really focused on, you know, Minnesota cannabis for Minnesotans. There is certainly a concerted efforts to keep MSOs that are operating in other states out of Minnesota. Um, yeah. I don't know how well that plays from a long view. Um, you know, one thing that large-scale MSOs have is industry success, capital to deploy, knowledge to deploy. Um, you know, it, they aren't necessarily the big, bad cannabis companies like some people like to paint them as. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the OC, like I said, the OCM has recognized that issue. They've suggested that there would be a change made. I'm in agreement with the OCM in that position. I think that change needs to be made um, because a cannabis license that cannot be propped up and doesn't have financing and never turns into an actual cannabis dispensary or a cannabis grow is worthless. And so I think right. there needs sort of mechanism for capital raise. Um, the OCM has recognized that. And I, I do think that we will see a change coming um, with, with regards to that. Now, that doesn't mean that the social equity individuals are going to be left in the cold. They're still going to be entitled to 51% ownership and control of their companies. They'll just have an opportunity to raise money and raise capital and then deploy that capital in a way that they see fit and, and that it aligns with their business plan and their business vision. 
I want to pack, unpack a couple of things on there. When it comes to MSOs, they can live in perfect harmony with craft cannabis owners and for also the social equity licensees. We can have a perfect storm of all of that where, you know, you have large and small. That's that's totally fine. It's just a matter that we don't want to make it where they're one, where that the MSOs monopolize the market is what we all don't want to have. But there's always a room for it. Absolutely. The other thing is that quota right there. The, the highlight one more time, 100% of the social equity licensee or the owners that have to be a part of this have to meet the social equity qualifiers. That's, you know, there's a, there's not a lot of room to go and work with where, as you said, you're going to have to have some people that probably do not meet that social equity standard that are going to be part of the ownership or part of the group that's going to be helping to fund and help, you know, to bring this across the finish line so that they have enough money to go past all the inspections and obstacles that yeah. go along with trying to get the dispensaries open or get the cultivation, the, the grows open. I mean, there's, right. you've got to have yeah. that. So like, it really does limit the amount of, you know, you're now limiting it not only because of, you know, various issues of qualifying, whatever those might be, but then those people within that category, they have to also have the business acumen already within them. It's as if they, which, and I think that's a part that's not good because I think you can't have it be a hundred percent. I think when you hear like you said, 50, 60%, I think it's feasible, but it's restrictive. And I don't want to say it's racial. I don't want to say it's, you know, uh, oppressive. I don't think it's that, but I think it's just something where you got to have room for, it's just like any other business. I mean, like any, a lot of times minority-owned businesses, sometimes they have to have backing from someone else that that's not part of it. I mean, look, there's one thing to be, you know, to be leadership and wanting to pull in somebody else for leadership that comes from the same background as you, the same plight as you. But when it comes to ownership, when it comes to building out a business and, you know, people can't really afford to go and go through and hopefully find a grant or some kind of public-private partnership that a government, you know, puts aside for social equity, an investment fund. And that might work for only so long. And maybe, you know, you can go and do that and then pay back the loan with 12, 13, 15% interest, whatever it is. But then you also have to withstand whatever kind of inspections, whatever kind of delays there might be on building your property. And I mean, for social equity, we already learned in Illinois and in New York that they all have this idea they had to go and do a temporary facility before their full built out new permanent facility is allowed to be open. Yeah. So a couple of things there. One, yeah. as written right now, property control is a requirement for the application process. The OCM, that's another area that they've identified and suggested that that be revised uh, because of the struggle for any applicant, but certainly social equity applicants to secure property and, and the financial drain the results of having to secure property, submit an application, and then wait and wait and wait, wait for your license. Meanwhile, you're paying that monthly rent or lease payment or real estate option payment to make you know, to keep your option alive every single month. And you should drain finances from your company as your fingers are crossed, hoping you win that license. So so hopefully that part gets changed as well. Um, that being said, I don't think it's a bad idea to give a leg up to applicants that do have real estate control because those are the applicants that will be open the quickest because they already have the real estate, which means they have the zoning, they have what's needed to get a license open. Um, excuse me again. Um, and uh, the the piece of, uh, like you said, in Illinois, um, the, the social equity applicants having to you know partially open or wait while their licenses get issued, same in New York. Um, those two states have something in common that as much as Minnesota is going to try to avoid it, I don't see how they do, and that's litigation. And the litigation is going to come. And it's, it is, the litigation is no one's fault because it is inevitable. When you have a government program that is going to pick winners and losers on a subjective basis, those losers are not going to agree with the subjective decisions of the government. And their avenue to protest that is through litigation. They might be wrong. The losers might be wrong, right? At the end of the day, the losers could absolutely be wrong, but they at least want a third-party decider, the judge, to take a look at what the government did and say, yeah, I agree. I've, I've reviewed the applications. This application was better. They're entitled to a license. Um, 
but I just, I don't see in a competitive licensing state how you avoid that. And so far in this country, there's not been a competitive license state that has rolled out their program without litigation. I don't see Minnesota somehow accomplishing being the first. I'd love to be wrong, um, but I don't see it. I mean, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot that, that you know, they brought the rollout in place. Again, it needs tweaking and needs adjustment. And some of the, this is where when you let government leaders in some cases go ahead and decide to go and make things to where they think they're doing it for the greater good, but they don't really look logically what the real business aspect or what, what some of the other complications they create as a result. So, you know, they have to go and push, there has to be a pushback. Plus, you know, government runs slowly. So as much as the legislatures respectively run slowly, they're going to make business and the process, the application process, the licensing process, the build-out process is going to delay. You're not. You're just going to get a quick, a crack, a, a, a quick track to getting everything done. It's just not feasible, and every state has already learned that doesn't happen. And yeah, like you said, you can try to, to as much as you can not become Illinois or New York, but you're going to do the same thing they did. It's just unavoidable. Now I'm here again with David Standa, partner in the cannabis law practice group at Green Spoon Martyr here on Blunt Business, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a real beneficiary of social equity, the indigenous tribes that are now immediately able to go ahead and open dispensaries and start grows right away. We'll talk about what they've already done so far, plus the autonomy for the home grow. For those of you in Minnesota to be able to go and grow it, you know, I don't know how you do it in that cold climate. I guess you're going to open up your garages or find a greenhouse and find a way to go ahead and grow it yourself because you can do quite a bit. We'll talk about that after a short break. Stay tuned with us. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with the partner in the Cannabis Law Practice Group at Green Spoon Martyr, David Standa. Uh, from Minnesota Public Radio, I want to ask about this now. So tribal governments, we're talking about the Native American tribes, the indigenous. They don't have to wait for states, the state's licensing system to open dispensaries. Minnesota's 11 Native American tribal nations are sovereign, and now they can operate independently from state laws and regulations. So the first adult use dispensary opened right away after the legislation was signed on the Red Lake Nation in northern central Minnesota. The Red Lake dispensary is called Native Care. has been providing medical marijuana to band members and non-members since last April. So this goes in right away. And has there been any kind of, you know, response to the fact that the tribal nations get to go and do this right away? And how much ground will they be able to cover right away for adult use cannabis? So... The reaction, I mean, from someone that represents licensed cannabis companies that have to go through a lengthy licensing process in various states, um, I've been shocked at how positive the tribal nation dispensaries have been received. Um, they, I mean, they're unbelievably smart and sophisticated, and they were so quick to jump in. Um, you know, Red Lake Nation is is having wild success given how far away it is from the twin cities um it's about a four-hour drive and on its first day it had to shut down uh online sales because it had received so many orders it was unable to fill them they now have a mobile uh i guess van you'd call it uh that's a dispensary uh-huh. shop that is operating again they have to uh, they have to maintain their operations on tribal lands unless they get what's called a compact which is something that minnesota does that that something they signed with, for example, the, the casinos here in Minnesota signed certain right. signed compacts and are able to operate outside of tribal lands. There's been some suggestions that the tribes may get that for cannabis. Uh, I would have to imagine that won't occur until after some of the licensed dispensaries are able to get open. Because if you allow the tribal lands to, or the, the tribes to operate outside of tribal lands before the licensed dispensaries are operating, that they'll, they'll create such a large advantage on the industry that I don't think anyone will ever catch up. Um, that being said, there's there's massive demand here in Minnesota. There is demand for the product. The one question I have is, and I've always had, is like, how much demand will there be if you have to go through the security process that there is a dispensary? And to me, the tribal, the tribal sales kind of answers that. People are willing to drive four and a half hours for it. They're going to be willing to go through the hassle of scanning their ID, going into a dispensary, ordering their products, going through a man trap, getting out the door. Like they're, they're going to be willing to do that. 
Now, are the soccer moms and the kind of curious people going to be willing to do that as much as they are willing to grab the THC beverages at the liquor store? We'll see. Uh, but there's no question that there is significant demand here in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, I'll say for the, the, the Red Lake Nation one, I'd say Minnesota and probably North Dakota as well. I imagine there's people driving over from North Dakota, uh, given the proximity there as well. But uh, they're having success. Um, and it's, you know, it's for the most part, it's been widely celebrated. And I, I think I think what they're doing is is very smart and intuitive and they, they should be applauded for it. And the thing well, the fact that, well, I already know that when, let's say here in South Florida, you know, where I'm at, you know, I see how well, you know, the indigenous tribes do in terms of having casinos and having all the different uh, facilities that are around it. So like for the longest time, if you want to go and buy cigarettes or buy tobacco itself, you can go through and find various areas to go and do such. But I would imagine the same thing goes here that in my thought process, I can imagine that, you know, in the same places that have been used for selling tobacco products, I can see where cannabis is being brought in. Like, is there anything to be said about that the dispensaries that are opening up, do they have to adhere to any kind of, you know, codes or any kind of uh, what they're allowed to go and sell and, you know, can they do a thing where they can have tobacco and cannabis sold in the same shop or liquor the same way? And maybe in those casinos there are some cannabis consumption lounges that can be built out and created as well. Like there's, I can imagine for the the Native Americans, there's a lot they could do within the reservations if they attach them to the casinos or be adjacent to casinos. There is. Uh, I think this is where the business leaders of those tribes would have to make business decisions. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't know what the science of the statistics say about someone that consumes cannabis and their willingness to stay in a casino. Uh, I think those casinos are so financially viable that they might not want to mess with that business model if they don't have to. Um, they might be willing to or more looking more to add an, a revenue stream separate and apart from the casinos. Yeah. Uh, but I can, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know. I haven't looked into that, but I imagine they are and they're considering it and, and they're going to do what they think is the, the best financial play. Uh, and I also, you know, I, I'll say that it's not going to be the best financial play, but probably what's going to be the best ethical play. Um, you know, I, you know, we've had discussions with tribes in other states and some tribes are just, or they're not interested in uh, that. They have had past substance abuse issues within their tribes. And, you know, even, even if it wasn't necessarily cannabis substance abuse, they, they, they don't want to get involved with any sort of substance. Um, right. Despite, you know, the, the numerous studies on the medicinal benefits of cannabis, they're just, they're not interested or they're not ready at this time to make those steps. Um, and and those are for the tribal leaders to decide what they want to do. Here in Minnesota, two or three of the tribes were, you know, very bullish on cannabis and they've seen their success as a result. Well, because I'd imagine, yeah, maybe not so much. I can see where the consumption lodges might be the most involvement that a casino might have with cannabis. But I mean, having facilities, having buildings adjacent to it, just because you're going to get all that foot traffic, all that traffic going into the casinos, Getting them on the way in or on the way back would be beneficial for them to be able to do that. But they have to figure that out for themselves. But they get the chance to do that right off the bat. So that's a wonderful thing for the, the tribes. Again, another, maybe uh, sometimes an over an overlooked part of social equity. When we talk about those that are disenfranchised or, uh, you know, maybe oppressed or, you know, not given the opportunities, that's a, that's a particular part of the community that doesn't get considered too much as a minority. I always notice that sometimes more than others. There's always certain other, you know, groups of people or other cultures that might get considered and there shouldn't be any such thing as there any kind of, you know, favoritism for one or the other. Personally, if you're going to do it for all, do it for all. But now when it comes to people individually at home, this is huge. I think this is one of the most important things that I thought I saw of all of this right here. Let's lay out the home grow. For those who want to grow it from home, citizens are now allowed to possess, use, and grow it. Possession of two ounces or less in public is now no longer a crime. People are allowed to have up to 8 grams of cannabis concentrate, edibles, with up to 800 milligrams of THC and 2 pounds of cannabis at home. They can grow now up to 8 plants. Only 4 can be mature enough to be flowering at once. Exceeding limit could bring a civil penalty of $500 per plant, but it's again, just a penalty. 
It's not a, it's not a criminal offense. It's just a, a misdemeanor. So let's talk first of all this home grow and citizens now getting to yield more than most other states get to. So like, I mean, how are they going to police that? Ah, I mean, let's let's be realistic here. I think there's going to be no interest whatsoever, please. Right. And that, that's kind of the, the idea behind this is we have decriminalized the plant. We have, we being Minnesota, have, have no interest in the well-established, long, drawn-out war on drugs and incarcerating individuals for the possession or use of cannabis. Um, I do think that any efforts to give and or sell cannabis, unbrawled cannabis to, to minors or those under the age of 21, that will bring swift police interaction. Uh, but other than that, so individuals that are growing it within their own home, consuming it in their own home, um, they're going to be left alone. Uh, and, and to be honest, you know, the state fair this year, which was, you know, in, in late August, was right after legalization. So about, about a month after legalization. And there was a I'm not going to say significant, but certainly clear aroma of cannabis being consumed at the state fair for the first time mm-hmm. that I remember. So, you know, and, and there was, there's no, you know, if you're with small children, you might want to walk away from the, the smell. Um, but there was no police presence that was, you know, identifying or, you know, trying to, to seek that out. That seems to have been a, yeah, this is going to be the way of life now. Um, I, have not been to any concerts out at uh, at the new Viking Stadium. Um, you know, Target Field yeah. didn't really have a lot of, of summer concerts before you know the winter set in. But those are going to come in the spring, and I will bet you right now that there's going to be a significant aroma of cannabis smell uh, as you approach those stadiums and get ready for those concerts <laughs> as well. And that's just going to be the way of life. So oh, it's true. But yeah, you, know, you make a good couple of points. Avoiding any kind of distribution. Or selling the miners, and also you know to go and try to go ahead and control the amount of plants that somebody might be growing from home. I'm wondering how they're going to take care of that because I can also imagine that if they're taking away from the profits of dispensaries, neighboring dispensaries, and there's home grows that people are trying to go and go through. Like I mean, this might take care. This obviously takes care of a good chunk of the illicit market because there will be a lot of that illicit market if people can go and grow so much at home in the first place. I think that. That's one thing that what it will do. It will deter illicit market sales. I, it will. I think Minnesota's tax rate on cannabis uh, compared to other states is going to do that better than than this. I, I think if someone was already growing cannabis at home, they're just going to continue to grow cannabis at home. If someone was growing 12 cannabis plants at home and now it's legal to grow eight, I do not believe that they're going to reduce the amount of plants that they have within their house. Um, I don't, And I don't think that's going to bring any sort of police presence to their neighborhood or, or, or to their residents because, you know, unless you significantly abuse this, I don't see law enforcement having the resources or the time or wanting to exert the effort to do anything about it. Now, if you're growing, if you you know buy out uh, a greenhouse and it's visible on Google Earth, then you can look at it and there's a hundred plants. Yeah, you're probably going to get I knock on the door and you're, you're going to have some significant fines. But if you're growing 10 plants in your closet, now to be clear, this I'm not saying this is legal advice. I'm not saying that you should do this. What I'm saying is I don't see that as being a, a basis that law enforcement is going to use to, you know, search your house or to enter your house. Um, you know, but, but that being said, if your neighbor knows you're growing too many and you get in a fight with your neighbor, I wouldn't be surprised if people are petty and, call the cops and say this person has too many plants in their house. So, you know, I can see those kind of interactions happening, but it's, it's, it is going to be, uh, whether you agree with it or not, it is going to be an accepted way of life here in Minnesota that people are going to be able to grow their own plants in their own house. Um, they consume the way that they see fit. Uh, you know, obviously don't you ever get behind the wheel of a car when they consume. Um, Ideally, you, you should try to consume in a way that doesn't interfere with anyone else's life or bother anyone else. Uh, and and if, if that's done, I don't see this. Yeah. 
Another interesting wrinkle on the home grow. State seed law requires businesses to undergo occasional testing to verify that information about their cannabis seeds stacks up to what they claim on a label. But that process has lagged since the state hasn't been able to start testing. And they talked to, uh, there was a story that talked to Michael Merriman, seed regulatory supervisor at the state plant protection division, saying that, quote, we haven't started accepting things we're testing. And in Minnesota, we require things to be labeled a test that's able to substantiate those labeled claims. That's to protect the consumers of seed in the state. And Merriman also said that about 30 businesses have applied for state permits to label cannabis seeds so far. Minnesotans can legally buy cannabis seeds labeled in other states. And Merriman also says that that has frustrated some retailers who would like to offer more Minnesota-grown seeds right away. And he says also, quote, uh, I think it's going to be difficult for in-state people to work since we're still waiting on rules in the Office of Cannabis Management to get established. People aren't actually able to start growing plants yet and selling plants yet, and that's where they'll get their seed sources from. So the seeds that they're allowed to go and use to start growing with, I guess that's where the the regulation will really come into play and where they're getting their seeds from. Yeah, so this is no different than any other state, right? So you know, let's use Illinois for an example. When Illinois legalized adult-use cannabis and they issued uh, license, I guess even the medical program, you issue licenses to cultivation centers. Those cultivation centers have to get their seeds somewhere, which would be from plants. And in theory, all of those plants should be illegal, but it's kind of like you have to look the other way and say, well, we have to start this industry somehow. Like they have to be able to bring their seeds. Um, Or if you're growing in one state and you want to bring those genetics to Minnesota to create your craft grow or a home grow, you have to get those seeds into the state somehow. And in theory, they should not be crossing state lines because of the federal Ill- illegality. But are you really going to dig into where those seeds came from at, at this at this initial point in the industry? Now, a year from now, when we have testing laboratories and we have the ability to track the genetics and we know everything is coming from, yeah, I think it's going to be very important to testing seeds and, and tracking everything and consumers especially cannabis consumers who are, are looking as an alternative to, to alcohol or, or other vices are, seem to be health-conscious individuals that want to know where their products are coming from. And it's going to be important that the labels on those seeds or the products or wherever it is that's being purchased on the consumer end are accurate. And so it's, it's going to take a while. I think they'll get there. Um, but testing is certainly an issue. I know testing right now is an issue in the hemp industry here in Minnesota just because there aren't enough testing sites. And that's just, it is what it is, but it's, you're starting an industry at a whole cloth and there's going to be growing pains and this is going to be one of them. And one of the other is I always was wondering about, because I know it's with New York State, about how they're allowing outdoor grow or outdoor cultivation. Can you tell me anything about, uh, I wasn't able to re- find my information. Was there a lot being said about that companies could also grow outdoors or does it need to be more specifically indoor grow? No, outdoor grow is going to be an option with a cultivation license or a meso business license with a cultivation endorsement or a micro business license, I believe, with a cultivation endorsement. Um, but outdoor grow is going to be an option. You can gr- you get a larger square footage for your grow if you like to grow outdoors as opposed to indoor. Um, obviously, you're limited in your grow season here in Minnesota if you like to grow outdoors. So you know, you, you better make sure that you nail your harvest and get the yield you need to get if you're going to grow outdoors. But um, I don't remember the exact square footage for the outdoor grow, but it is in the statute. Uh, it, it, it's specified. Um, the clients I've talked to so far have all indicated a desire to do an indoor grow. Um, but as long as it is, like, you know, you need to secure your facility, there will be uh, regulations that come out on what does it mean to secure your facility. But Outdoor grows will be an option, and I'm sure some people will try them. Um, and I'm sure there's some growers that have the specific cyclical design that they use. And they, right. they can get a higher yield, and and that's what they'll use to grow here in Minnesota. And I can imagine there's again that rotation will come into play. And I can imagine hemp farmers wanting to go and take advantage of be able to go ahead and do that, or they can rotate their crops and put cannabis in, you know, at the same time on their in their fields, and then rotate out for hemp. I, I'm not even sure, but I know hemp really does well in Minnesota. I remember going back and talking to folks that came from Minnesota that have been doing hemp and now hemp was originally about, going back even over a century ago, 
was such an important, you know, crop for Minnesota itself. And so, like, to have this opportunity for the farmers out there would also be good for them to know that they can do the outdoor. Except the only difference is, I know, and York State in particular, they've already had to crack down on some of the outdoor grows because of the contamination from fertilizers or they're finding, you know, more significant tree testing of yeast, mold, bacteria, and various other contaminants that might be being put into the plants from, from being outdoors and being, you know, subjected to the outdoor climate. There's that that has to be taken to as well. So I imagine that would be, while that statute's in place and it's an optional thing, that the control, the Office of Cannabis Management needs to go and keep an eye on that for compliance standards, especially for outdoor. So that's another part to be looked at. Now, at the very beginning of the interview, you made the point when we were summarizing some of the advantage that Minnesota has with their rollout of adult-use cannabis, the liquor stores. So I want to get into that coming up. After one more break, I was going to wrap things up here on Blood Business. And for those that want to go and learn more about Green Spoon Martyr does in terms of what they're able to go and do for, yeah, maybe for those of you in Minnesota and other neighboring states that can go and help out. They have 200 attorneys, 26 locations throughout the United States, fully recognized, nationally recognized, full-service business law firm with cannabis law practices, especially with where David is uh, situated at. Website is gmlaw.com, gmlaw.com. You can find more about that and take a look at the website as we go to commercial break. We'll be right back. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. We're back with final questions here on Blunt Business with David Standup, partner in the Cannabis Law Practice Group at Greenspoon Martyr. So the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has reported that local governments could start dispensaries in Minnesota, and while state-run dispensaries are a new idea, Adult use has opened the door for local governments to run dispensaries, similar to how some states own liquor stores. So the framework isn't in place for licensing, but the idea is that municipalities could already that already run liquor stores could eventually start selling cannabis products. Now, there's a lot of this where I remember in Minnesota, there's a new show we're going to be featuring here on Cannabis Radio called Planting Seeds. And it's being hosted by the uh, Pennsylvania State Senator Cherie Street and Joe Hodes from Wana Brands. And one of the areas you talk about the fact is something like this here, where Pennsylvania is trying to go look to roll out adult use. Eventually, the bill's already been put into, you know, been draw, drafted, and the legislature is looking to go and bring it up to a vote, hopefully eventually. But the idea is that Pennsylvania already has this one idea where they already do, like, state-run liquor stores. And they have it where maybe those state-run liquor stores would be able to go ahead and allow cannabis to be sold in those stores as well. So what can you tell me about this aspect here about liquor stores getting the chance to go ahead and sell cannabis and, you know, without having to go through the traditional conventional dispensary model? So I want to kind of clarify something. So municipalities are able to apply for and obtain cannabis licenses. So they can open cannabis retail stores and they can own and operate them. But those adult use cannabis stores cannot also sell liquor but but the liquor stores can sell is derived low potency thc which is which is from the prior bill um and that's that's what's for sale now in liquor stores here in minnesota so even though there aren't any cultivation centers and there's no cannabis or you know marijuana grows that are generating these hemp beverages or sorry these, these thc beverages um, or, or THC edibles. Those THC edibles and those THC beverages are being derived from hemp right now. They're allowed to, it, it's it's Delta 9 hemp in those beverages, and those are allowed to be sold in liquor stores. They can be sold in liquor stores that are owned, as you indicated, owned by municipalities. Um, in addition, the statute allows municipalities to open and regulate their own retail stores. So, for example, there's a town in Minnesota called Eden Prairie. Every liquor store in the town of Eden Prairie is owned and operated by Eden Prairie. Wow. And they could, in theory, have that same model for their dispensary. Um, subject to, they would have to meet the floor, as you talked about previously, 12,500 residents. They'd have to meet that floor for the number of dispensaries. Otherwise, someone could come in and say, well, you haven't issued all the licenses for this municipality. I want to get a license and operate here. You'd have to go through zoning and everything else, and you're probably fighting city hall on that. But in theory, you could do it. Um, or the municipalities can say, "No, we're going to operate our dispensary." 
we think we can do this just like we think we can do liquor stores and we're going to design and build out and be compliant and we're going to do our own dispensaries within our municipality um uh it, it, that is to me a very very part of this bill and it's i don't know how it's going to play out um just because as we've indicated you know we talked about previously um if you apply and you need real estate to apply you could be sitting there bleeding taxpayer money as a municipality while you wait for your license to be issued then when your license does get issued, there's all sorts of security compliance, regulatory compliance, everything else that you have to do. Um, like how long are your taxpayers going to be okay with that model before they say, wait a second, we want to see some revenue here. Um, now, given the demand we've talked about, it seems as though these dispensaries are going to be very successful and will generate a lot of revenue. So maybe there's a, a longer leash for those taxpayers, but um, you know, that's, it's, it's, going to be very interesting and fascinating and uh you know some smaller municipalities uh in various parts of the state might say yeah we want to get one you know we based on our population we have a minimum of our maximum minimum of one dispensary we need to have we're going to we're going to get that one as a municipality and we're going to run it and we're going to generate revenue and it's going to be great for us um but you know just remains to be seen You know, it's funny where the government could also go ahead and take advantage of their own thing. And, you know, it's like, I'll never understand the whole liquor store aspect where it's where municipalities can run their own liquor stores. And it's always interesting what it's like that up in other states. Well, yeah, just as much as there is like, you know, last call in other states, because like in Florida, last call so late here. We honestly, a lot of liquor stores that really sell a lot of hemp derived or any cannabis derived products in their stores either. It's always kind of like we're, they're split up. I mean, because, I mean, for us, we also have a, a, a real rampant amount of vape and smoke shops all over the state. So, like, to combine both, really, it's kind of like where they just kind of keep it church and state here. It's always been fun and fascinating where other states don't have it as much like that. But, you know, there's so much more we can learn from this. But, like I said, this was just a good precursor just to really understand Minnesota and just the unique, interesting aspects of what's being allowed and what can be done. Because, I mean... A lot more questions I can ask about it, but like, there's so much here, and I commend Minnesota for what they've done. They're going to become adult use, and what they've done with the rollout. Now, obviously, they're going to have their issues with trying to go ahead and implement, tweak, adjust, so that the program works really well for all. But I think they've done quite a few unique things here to help curb illicit market, to give more people access to cannabis, and you know, just across the board, I think. There's a lot of good that comes out of that. And also for you know, groups like the indigenous tribes that go and be able to benefit from it as well. There's a lot there. I, I can appreciate what they've done so far. So David, let's go ahead and wrap things up. And again, I mentioned a website earlier for Green Spoon Martyr is gmlaw.com, gmlaw.com. And David, for those that want to go ahead and work with your team and if they might be looking to start in Minnesota, get their license up, again, they need 381 dispensaries as a total at a minimum, at least to get them started across the state. I don't know how many licensees are out there, but or how many people are looking to go ahead and get themselves into the cannabis business in Minnesota for adult use. But if they're looking to go ahead and reach out to your team for that or other states or what have you, what should they do? So the easiest way to do it is to get in touch with me via email. That's david.standa at gmlaw.com. My team and I uh, have been in the cannabis space now for almost seven years. Uh, we've got clients across the country. Um, as you previously indicated, we assist with licensing applications. We also assist with you know, compliance and regulatory issues. We've done several uh, license acquisitions as well, um, closed several license sales. Uh, we assist in litigation, um, both with state regulator regulators as well as uh, you know, cannabis company to cannabis company, although we, you know, hope that all cannabis companies can avoid litigation. We do have the team that can assist with that. Uh, and the team consists of myself, uh, Irina Dushevsky, Ryan Holtz, and Doug Sargent. That's the team that was founded and kind of runs the Chicago office. We also have Nick Richards, who is a phenomenal cannabis tax attorney um, and is kind of the, the leading expert on 280E. 
which if you're looking to get in the cannabis space and are not already in it, um, talking to Nick is probably a, an absolute must. Uh, and then we have a team in, in New York as well that's uh, headed by John Pearl um, that is involved in everything that's going on in New York, which is fascinating in and of itself at the moment. Fantastic. I, I love what you're bringing out together. And, you know, I hadn't realized that we haven't had Green Spoon Martyr here on this program until now. So I'm glad we had a chance to go and talk to you, David, because uh, it was always the NCIA folks always got to talk to you guys. But, you know, um, that would happen to have you on the Blunt Business Program. And uh, let's let's always look at a chance to go ahead and revisit on this and any other areas that come up. So hope we get to go and do that at some point. Thank you again for being on with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Once again, David Stan, the partner in the Cannabis Law Practice Group at Greenspoon Martyr here on Blunt Business. And now you know what it's like in Minnesota. Learn, take from that as you will. A lot of information being disseminated. So if you have to listen to this episode again, please do and take notes. And please make sure to subscribe to the program, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify. And I'm not going to say Google anymore because we are now. Google itself is already trying to transition out. So you'll find Blunt Business now on YouTube and YouTube Music on their apps, proprietary. So Find it there. Thanks for listening in. We'll talk to you next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.